Coming up on Stu Does America, now that Joe Biden is presumably sound asleep on the Oval Office couch with a glass of warm milk. The hot topic of conversation is back to COVID vaccines and their distribution. We'll talk with Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute about how the government and the free market are affecting Americans getting their shots. And executive order Palooza continues with a newly sworn in president draining packs of Sharpies in an attempt to undo everything from the previous administration. Can't just take a break and just uh, go out on the South Lawn, play with the dogs, do something. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Just a reminder, of course, you can catch all of our episodes completely free on YouTube, Facebook, podcast, and more. Just head to stewdoesamerica.com for the links and help us take a stand against conservative censorship with a Blaze TV account. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 30 bucks for a limited time. On today's program, it's unity for me, but not for thee. Sounds like a fantastic time, doesn't it? Let's do the vaccine for unity. Stu does America. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., our president. He's been giving a lot of pleas for unity lately. And the Biden formulation of how you define unity is pretty interesting. It's similar to the Barack Obama definition. We will unite with you if you agree with us. If we propose a tax hike, we will allow you to sign on and agree with that tax hike. That's unity. If we propose a tax hike and you say you do not want a tax hike, you are obstructing. That's not unity. Damn you. Of course, working across the aisle is not just telling your enemies that they are allowed to adopt your positions. Now, when I tell you that Jen Psaki seems delightful, that's bipartisanship, particularly when she is wearing green. I am telling you a positive thing about a member of the Biden administration without any qualifiers whatsoever. I'm not saying she has to agree with me or really say anything coherent at all. In fact, I'm not even mentioning a word that she said. That's true bipartisanship. One issue that uh, Biden is asking for unity on is his handling of COVID-19, in particular, his effort to vaccinate 100 million people in 100 days. Sometimes people have dared to break the spirit of unity and mention to Joe, hey, Joe, isn't that basically the pace we're on now? That sort of questioning isn't useful at all. And it garnered a use of Joe Biden's magical phrase. When I announced that you all said it's not possible, come on, give me a break, man. Ah, don't you love it? In case you're not familiar, Joe Biden's magical phrase, come on, man, or come on, give me a break, man, is legitimately magic. It makes any tough question disappear. Hey, Joe, was that really your son's laptop? Come on, man. Oh, okay. Sorry for asking. My fault. That that was on me. This is what's uh, so frustrating about Biden's pleas for supposed unity. He doesn't mean them. He's treating unity like it's a disease and acting like he is the vaccine for it. His actions make it impossible for unity to exist. He's not alone in Washington, but he's acting like the vaccine for unity, not the cure for what divides us. Biden's pleas for unity are essentially just a tone change. He gives off the vibes of someone asking for unity while jamming through executive orders about the most controversial issues in the public discourse. Climate change, LGBT issues, immigration and more. 
just like he comes off tonally like a moderate and then acts like a progressive. When you're getting complimented by Bernie freaking Sanders for the quality of your platform, you are no moderate. You can tell he doesn't want unity because if he did, he wouldn't have his aides running to the media to lie about the vaccine distribution plan. You would use the fact that we are already vaccinating over a million people a day as an opportunity to show grace and bring people together. Try and find a mission that both sides can work on together and both sides take credit for. If you were Joe Biden and you really wanted unity, you'd say, look, we obviously disagree with Trump on a lot of things, but everyone was skeptical that you'd get a vaccine in nine months, including me. The Trump administration worked closely with Congress and big pharmaceutical companies and pulled it off. My side of the aisle has been really critical of both Trump and big pharma, but they deserve credit where credit is due. Additionally, I came in here with a big promise, a hundred million vaccinations in a hundred days. I thought it was a really ambitious proposal. Obviously, that's a million per day. On my inauguration day, though, a day that is split evenly between myself and President Trump, we managed 1.6 million vaccinations. And to be clear, none of that was my doing. That was the previous administration, Congress, our public health experts, and the private sector working together for the good of the nation. It was a nice surprise to look at the most important weapon we have in the most important battle we are fighting and find that we were already significantly ahead of my already ambitious goal. And it disturbs me that unnamed members of my administration, definitely not Jen Psaki, I know it wasn't her because she wouldn't do something like that. No, she would not. I'm pissed off about people in my administration running off to CNN, though, and telling them that there's no vaccine distribution plan and that we had to start from scratch. That isn't true. Dr. Fauci, who we obviously kept on from the Trump administration, says it isn't true. And while we're doing several things to try and improve on what was started by President Trump, we are not starting from scratch. We vaccinated more people than any other country in the world, over 22 million people already. These are just facts. This isn't the time for partisanship and blah, 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 blah. Something like that would be fantastic. You know what? That's not going to happen. And honestly, that's not a terrible thing. I mean, unity for unity's sake is not always the best idea. As Kevin Williamson writes, the United States does not suffer from a lack of sufficient unity. The United States thrives on the opposite of unity. Disagreement, debate, competition, rivalry. Totalitarian countries have unity. Democratic republics have disagreement. That's why we have elections and legislatures. Disagreement is good if you know how to do it. We do seem less and less like we know how to do it these days, but that doesn't mean we unite with those we think are insane, especially when they already have too much power. As Williamson writes, we treat presidents like kings when they are only employees and temps at that. I won't pretend that Joe Biden is my friend or even that I respect him. He isn't and I don't. But he won the election, so he holds the office until he doesn't. I hope President Biden takes the opportunity to do some good things, by which, of course, I mean things that I agree with. I don't expect that to be the case because we disagree about what is best for the country. And those disagreements are over issues such as civil rights and the sanctity of life itself, not trivia. And so I will argue with him and his partisans, criticize him and oppose him. Yes, we can be honest, truthful and civil in our debate. 
We can give credit to the other side when they freaking deserve it. We can solve simple problems in simple ways. But that debate needs to continue. It's vital to our constitutional republic, and the debate is more important than bland and meaningless calls for unity. But simply, it's the American way. And without it, we have one less thing to be fighting for. Trying to buy or sell a home in these times can be challenging. We know. That's why you need a real estate agent that you can trust. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find one. If you are in one of those situations where you're selling a house, you realize it needs a little work. I feel like there's that moment as a home owner where you're like, do I do these like improvements, these replacements? Do I upgrade the house in these ways? Is that going to pay off when I sell this house? That question is really difficult to answer. Um, and if you are trying to go through that process, you might upgrade the wrong thing. You might say, you might fix something that doesn't need to be fixes, fixed. I have a relative who's trying to sell their house and they said, you know, I need to do this, 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 and this. And I said, why don't you just sell the stupid thing and not go through all that hassle just to get rid of it at the end? Someone will come in and they'll want to do that work. Maybe it'll cost you a couple thousand dollars in the final sales price, but that's the sort of calculus you need to be able to do, and you need someone you can trust to help you work through it. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find the best agent in your area. Realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. You know, sometimes the show just all comes together, and who knows how it happens. I don't know how it happens, just sometimes it happens. Like today, I'm watching Joe Biden speak about his Buy American Act and I look down, and who do I have booked for today? The Cato Institute's Scott Linsicum. He's the author of Capitalism, the newsletter at The Dispatch. Scott, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. I couldn't have planned it better if I'd tried. <laughs> this is, you're like the guest to have today uh, after Joe Biden is out there speaking about uh, the Buy American Act. Can we start there? Do you have any idea sure. what this is and how damaging it might be? Yeah, it's really hard to say right now. Um, it, uh, you know, the, it has to go through implementation. We need to see the regulations and the rest. And there's about six months that um, the, the president has given uh, the regulatory apparatus to kind of get get it all together, all the agencies and everything. But what we can say is that the the president wants to spend more on government procurement, on federal contracts. Um, they because that's precisely um, what they're saying in the text of of the executive order, and that is that they're going to raise the price thresholds for supposedly you know American made goods. So in other words, saying hey, agencies, you can go out and spend even more if it means you're going to buy something that's made in America. And, you know, again, like nothing wrong with buying American products. Uh, we're, we're, we're fine with that, of course. Uh, it sounds wonderful every time you hear right. the words buy American. This is certainly not a Democrat or Republican, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, market that has been cornered here. It is. No, no. It goes both ways. Yeah. And in fact, President Trump issued an executive order early on in his administration on Buy American, and then he issued a few others after that. Um, there's a lot of bipartisan support for it for precisely the the reasons you mentioned. I mean, who could be against buying American, right? right? It's only nerds like me that that have to you know hold up our, our finger and say, well, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, and that really boils down to not only, of course, increased 
uh, government spending, on the federal contracting process. But also the, there's a lot of problems with defining what is American made these days because global supply chains are such that uh, American manufacturers are so integrated into the global economy, particularly with Canada and Mexico and kind of the NAFTA supply chain. It's really hard for them to figure out what actually is American, what's going to qualify, and how they can then meet the standards that the president is going to set. And of course, you know, every time a politician changes the standards, they have to go back, hire a bunch of lawyers and accountants and try to figure that out. So, you know, the history of Buy American is really replete with examples of just this type of mess. Um, and so beyond the higher costs, um, there's just a really mind-numbing amount of complexity that, that discourages American manufacturers from participating in the programs and um, makes it even harder for, for these programs to, to work in terms of uh, boosting manufacturing. Yeah, it seems like a, a, a story that has repeated itself many, many times. Um, one more thing on the Biden speech today. In the middle of it, yeah. he said he wanted to make sure that he strongly stated his support for the Jones Act. Right. Uh, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to strongly state your support for the Jones Act if that happens to exist. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> my I, I strong opposition is my position, uh, unsurprisingly. Mm. Um, you know, look, the Jones Act is is really the poster child for where Buy American can go wrong. The act has been in place for about 100 years. It's supposedly for national security reasons. That for, for your viewers, uh, that means that the United States uh, restricts shipping between U.S. ports to only ships that are made in America, owned by Americans, crewed by Americans, and the rest. Um, the, the, that sounds great again, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that this has so dramatically raised the costs of coastwise shipping in the United States that it has actually led to a tremendous shrinkage of the U.S. merchant marine fleet, which is the whole point, right? So if you look at a little graph of the merchant marine fleet, you know, for the last hundred years or so, it just keeps trending down. That's because the costs involved in doing something that is 100% American made are so much that uh, American shipping companies just can't compete can't compete with foreign competition. And then that leads to all sorts of bizarre, unintended consequences. For example, um, energy uh, companies in the Northeast end up buying natural gas from Trinidad and Tobago, or even worse, from Russia, instead of from Houston, because the shipping costs are so darn prohibitive to use US ships to get it from Houston to Boston. So they use the cheaper shipping and they get it from the Caribbean or again, from, from places like Russia. And it goes on and on and on with respect to how damaging the Jones Act is, particularly for places like Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico that are of course part of the United States and totally reliant on on shipping. It really is amazing because the Jones Act is like the example. Every time a piece comes out about show, trying to show the truth about one of these policies, the Jones Act is the example. And it's one of those where you, you read it and you're like, OK, we can fix this one. Right. Absolutely not. No, no. And, it, you know, it's in fact, I have a paper coming out on Wednesday and the Jones Act is it's featured there. It's on trade and national security and manufacturing and the rest. So, again, thank you to the president for uh, giving me an, an easy news hook. But, yeah, the Jones Act is a just classic example of where this goes wrong. Uh, good intentions, national security objectives, but totally hijacked by the industry over the years um, and leading to high costs, failed objectives and tons of dysfunction and cronyism. But because you and I 
I don't really care too much about the Jones Act. And because uh, the American shipbuilders and their workers really do, there's tremendous momentum, political momentum to, for keeping these laws in place despite their obvious economic and geopolitical harms. It really is amazing. All right, I want to move on to what, uh, why, why we brought you on originally. Yeah. Um, you wrote a great piece in your newsletter, Capitalism, which is great. You should definitely subscribe to the dispatch. It's, it's, a, it's a great read. Um, and it's about Operation Warp Speed. And I find Operation Warp Speed to be a really interesting topic uh, for me in that, like, I am, like you, sort of lean, you know, and you're libertarian. I sort of lean that way as well. I yeah. really don't like the idea in almost every circumstance of the government getting involved. However, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, speed, speed and not um, efficiency is, is the goal here. So yeah. I've looked at Operation Warp Speed with, and saw a lot of success there. And you pointed out there are some successes. Right. And, and you know, again, libertarians uh, like me are very comfortable with the government participating in public health issues. I mean, there's a really clear role for the government, given um, all the externalities and the rest that, that, that pop up um, when it comes to public health. Um, and Operation Warp Speed really did um, try to solve what was uh, a, a major national emergency, which is um, uh, getting to a vaccine. And so the idea behind Operation Warp Speed makes a lot of sense. Essentially, um, they're going to pick a few vaccine candidates and they're going to throw a ton of money at it. Um, and they're going to do it through two ways, upfront spending on research and development, but also just simply agreeing to buy certain quantities of any vaccines that end up making it through the regulatory process. So, you know, in theory, Operation Warp Speed makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, they did other things that that on paper are perfectly sensible, like trying to hammer out logistical bottlenecks and potential input supply issues and the rest. Um, and so, yeah, you know, on, on paper, I think there's there's good justification for for the program. Yeah, and I think too another big part of it was going through and, and excising a bunch of the red tape that a normal yes. vaccine would have to go through. I mean that that is always what holds these things up. Yeah, and I think that's probably the greatest accomplishment of Operation Warp Speed was streamlining uh, regulatory approvals and really fast tracking anything that pharmaceutical manufacturers needed in terms of getting past the red tape to get um, to manufacturing. And so, you know, typically pharmaceutical production goes um, in a sequential order. Um, you know, you have your R&D, then you get your approval, and then you start your manufacturing. Well, Warp Speed said to heck with that. Um, and they actually did manufacturing, uh, R&D and testing all in parallel. So three streams going all at the same time. Um, and the reason that manufacturers could do that was they had uh, uh, regulatory uh, approval to get that process going. And again, they had those contracts to defray any risks they might have had um, if, if they went through all that work and, and didn't get a, a, a vaccine to market. Okay. And, and, and with all that, of course, with the successes, uh, it can't yeah. all be positive news here. It's a big government no. program. We know there were some shortfalls as well. Where did Operation Warp Speed maybe fall down a little bit? Yeah, and I think that the two really big areas 
are first on the contracting itself. Again, that sounds really good, um, except that um, you know it's hard to pick an actual winner. So what happened, unfortunately, is that uh, one or two of the vaccine candidates had some of the raw materials needed to make the vaccine were earmarked for those companies that are slower than Pfizer and Moderna, which of course they have vaccines out. Mm-hmm. And so that actually ended up um, denying Pfizer um, some of the raw materials that Pfizer needed to crank out even more supply once they got approval. So that kind of gummed up the works in a way, in ways that that were unfortunately um, unexpected. Um, but another big way is that, you know, look, you put the government in charge of these programs and it inevitably is going to politicize distribution. And I think that's really where the big uh, problems have arisen. You know, we have a lot of states out there right now who have um, only have only used about 50% of the doses that the federal government has delivered. And the main reason appears to be because we have all of these um, fancy guidelines for who should be on priority list one and 1A and 1B. Um, and that was uh, all set forth really in these federal guidelines. And so those, again, they sound good, but when the goal is maximum speed, warp speed, anytime you inject that type of judgment and decision-making in the process, you're going to slow it down. And that's what we've seen in a lot of places. In fact, West Virginia, the the national leader in getting vaccine jabs into arms, uh, discarded most of the federal government's guidelines because they were voluntary. Instead, they went with their own approach, which was really just to maximize speed. And they've been extremely successful. Um, And the other thing they did, and I think this is the other distribution problem Warp Speed had, was they've really stuck with kind of traditional um, uh, distribution networks. So they're using independent pharmacies all over the state of West Virginia to handle the actual administration. Whereas in a lot of states, um, they're using uh, government health facilities, county health offices, and hospitals, which inevitably, again, kind of just slow things down. Um, And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, it leaves us asking whether, uh, you know, despite all those contracts and so forth, whether we might have been better off had we had a a market-based approach. Um, So if we could take the best things, there's a lot of things that Warp Street did pretty well maybe change up some of the things that didn't go so well. And what can we add to it? Like, is there, you talk about in the, in the newsletter a little bit about a free market approach. What could have been done on that front that could have improved things? Right. And, and so I think that you, you really could have seen, I think, a better effort to utilize existing supply chain and distribution networks. You know, um, um, pharmaceutical manufacturers like Pfizer and uh, to a lesser extent Moderna um, have a lot of experience of getting uh, drugs to uh, pharmacies and uh, and even getting vaccines like the flu vaccine into people's arms. And, you know, it seems that a, a, it would have been a smarter approach to utilize those existing supply chains and instead of trying to, to remake them. Um, another, I think, really important part is on the production side. Um, you know, I think, again, they, they did a good job with these advanced purchase contracts um, in terms of uh, defraying some of the risk, but they really, I think, should have stepped back from there and allowed the pharmaceutical manufacturers to um, to 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 just simply go ahead with 
their own distribution, and even to sell them uh, on the market um, in advance of regulatory approval should, of course, you know, everybody uh, agree to to waive their liability in that regard. Yeah, of course, there is all this pushback about how if you don't follow these re- uh, regulations, a, an evil rich person might get out of line and get the vaccine, which would be a terrible outcome. I, oh, uh, heaven, heaven forbid. But, you know, we're already seeing that happen. Right. And that's the really unfortunate thing. Um, the, a lot of the economists that have written on this um, have, have said, look, yes, the a free market approach would be would be imperfect. It would result in, um, you know, again, rich, evil, rich people getting it. Uh, it would result in certain uh, problems in terms of administering faulty vaccines or whatever. But the, the point is that, again, on the rich person side, I mean, we're already seeing this. There are already uh, people chartering private jets to go to the UAE to have uh, doses administered. And there's reports of people trying to pay to skip the lines, uh, even here in the United States. Um, And there's also a lot of reports of kind of just tech savvy young people figuring out (laughs) that if they hang out at health clinics after hours, they can get any leftover doses that might be available. So you're already seeing a stratification of sorts, but you're not getting any of the benefits because of course, rich people are willing to pay a lot of money for the vaccine. That of course encourages more investment and production, encourages more supply. And we're unfortunately not reaping the benefits we're just getting getting the costs yeah absolutely it's it's, it's frustrating because the tech savvy thing is amazing i mean it, you know these people are 85 years old trying to navigate these uh these government websites uh, it's a disaster in the making it really is and you know and the thing that really frustrates me is not you know a pure free market versus a per, pure government approach it's that you know policymakers both in the federal government and these states governments had had months to prepare for this yeah and they seem to have been caught flat-footed. You know, we are now finally, after seven weeks of administering vaccines, finally have have ramped up to a, a respectable uh, number. We're doing about a little over a million uh, doses a day, which is pretty good. Um, but gosh, it took seven weeks to get there. We were taking holidays off. Mm-hmm. Um, when, if this is a national emergency, you would you would think that we would treat this with the urgency that that an emergency deserves, and that really. Really hasn't been there until very, very recently. Okay, last one for you, Scott Lincecum. Uh, I believe I am one of approximately three people on Earth who use the phrase "big pharma" with admiration. Um, yeah. I, these companies are constantly vilified by both sides of the aisle. And here's an opportunity for them to really take potentially a victory lap. It certainly seems like what they've developed is amazing, and the way they turned it around so quickly is amazing. Don't they deserve some credit here? One hundred percent. You know, especially if you look at the the BioNTech and Pfizer vaccine, um, really incredible stuff here. Um, these guys acted entirely outside of Operation Warp Speed, with the except for that contract we mentioned. Mm-hmm. So they put two billion of their own dollars up front in R and D. They uh, they ha- you were using existing manufacturing facilities in the United States and abroad. They they even created new uh, what they call cool box system because it has to be stored at, at ultra low temperatures. They did all this stuff on their own and uh, and did it in in just an insanely uh, insane amount of time. Um, you know 
past vaccines took years to develop, and this took eight, 10 months. And Pfizer, to their credit, even predicted they would have millions of doses by the end of the year. And they did that in April, again, before Operation Warp Speed ever existed. And so for these guys to use existing knowledge and their you know, multinational supply chains and global research and development capacity and all these amazing things to get vaccines in our arms now is, is just incredible. And like you said, they should be taking multiple victory laps. It really is a testament to uh, capitalism. And of course, that is also the name of your newsletter. Scott Linsicum, uh, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, author of the Capitalism Newsletter at the Dispatch. Definitely worth subscribing to. Scott, thanks for coming on the program, man. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Good to be back. All right. Back in a second. All right, Super Bowl is set. Brady versus Mahomes, best of all time versus best of right now. Uh, pretty interesting matchup. Uh, I am, I love you in Tampa. You know I love you. We started in Tampa. I can't watch anything good happen to Tom Brady, though. I, I don't, I can't have that happen. Uh, therefore, I'm going to have to be rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm a fan of Andy Reid, and I like the Chiefs quite a bit. I will say, uh, this, the crowd, there's only letting 22,000 people in the crowd. Uh, they announced that 7,500 of them are going to be healthcare workers from the area, which is a really cool uh, thing, I think, by the uh, NFL. Although that brings it down to 15,000. You have the tickets from the, the, uh, the health workers across the country are getting some more. Uh, the teams are getting a bunch, of course, uh, players and all that. You add all that up. This is going to be quite possibly the most exclusive uh, sporting event of all time. And I'll be happy to tell you how it was from inside. So watch my social media because I'll be posting pictures just gloating like crazy. And you might be saying, well, I'm boycotting the NFL. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I'll hear it a little bit later when the Eagles are 4-11 and again. Then you can tell me about boycotting all you want. Um, also, I want to tell you about a church in California. We know about all the extremism coming from the right, as you know. Also, apparently some coming from the left or some other group, a church in, uh, L in California known for its anti-LGBTQ views. And some of the views, I'm not going to read some of the quotes from, this, from the guy who's heading up this church, but they're uh, Westboro Baptist Church-esque is how I would describe them. Uh, not a very popular church and had a bombing go on there. That's a big deal. Um, we'll give you the details as, that, as they go on. Also, I want to give you this from... Amazing. Uh, Stephen Miller caught this uh, on uh, Twitter, but this is a... Brian Stelter uh, Chiron, which is the little bottom, you know, lower thirds, they call them, bottom of the screen there. It says, Saki promises to share accurate info. How refreshing, in parentheses, uh, someone pointed out, and someone's going to be calling for the, Glenn Greenwald's going to call for the firing of the Chiron writer. Uh, and Brian Stelter said he wrote the Chiron, which basically saying he was saying how refreshing it was, which is kind of what he said on the show anyway. He wasn't hiding that. As a, as a noted Saki head myself, I, of course, can see how refreshing Jen Psaki is. Uh, but I, I don't know that if you're a journalist, you're supposed to be pointing that out. I, it doesn't seem like they're trying at this point. They just really didn't like Trump and they really like anything else. And they're just going to celebrate it openly. And that's something that maybe you just need to get get over it. Just get used to it. That's your life for the next four years. It's more inspiration to field a really good candidate candidate in 2024 and win, because if not, this is going to be the rest of our lives. Back in a second. Let me take you back in time a little bit to uh, March 25th, 2020. The uh, COVID situation is really ramping up. People are kind of freaking out. And Andrew Cuomo was in the middle of what I believe to be the worst handling of the crisis in the world. 
Uh, at that moment, Andrew Cuomo uh, has a, an executive order that basically, or health directive, that says that nursing homes need to import patients that are known to be COVID-19 positive. Uh, and of course, in my opinion, in any rational person's opinion, this would put those people who were not COVID-19 positive in the nursing homes at real risk. Uh, we know how that went. It did not go well. A few months go by after a bunch of criticism goes to Andrew Cuomo, and he launches a very authentic investigation of himself uh, where he exonerates himself completely, which is in incredible. Uh, not a huge surprise there. However, in the, that process, we were told they had looked at all the details and knew that nothing bad had happened with, with, these, uh, with this particular executive order. For that to be known, they would have needed to have the exact numbers of what happened in, in these nursing homes. They claimed they have the, had them to prove their case. Well, they won't release them to the public. None of this makes any sense. And there's really only one place that has been trying to hold uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, accountable and have him actually release this information. Bill Hammond, he is the senior fellow for health policy at the Empire Center. They're the guys doing all this hard work for us. Uh, they've been tracking New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's uh, behavior over the pandemic. Bill, thanks for coming on the program. Hi, Stu. Pleased to be here. Um, did I kind of summarize that with maybe maybe a little too much flair for your taste? But I mean, I, did I kind of <laughs> summarize uh, that that timeline appropriately? More or less. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I mean, the, the, tell, tell people what you're trying to do with the lawsuit. Well, we filed a Freedom of Information request going back to August. They um, they postponed us, which is what typically happens with a Freedom of Information request. They postponed it to November fifth. And we filed a suit on the grounds that that was an unreasonable delay. Uh, the lawsuit was finalized October 30th. Um, they've since delayed us two more times, mm. first to January 13th, and then most recently to March 22nd. It just occurred to me today that March 22nd is the one-year anniversary of the governor's lockdown, and it's three days before the one-year anniversary of the uh, the guideline that you just talked about, which came from the health department to nursing homes, telling them that they had to take COVID-positive patients from hospitals. Is it so common, Bill? It's a full year, in other words. Yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. Is it is it common for um, a an administration uh, or a uh, a government organization who faces a FOIA request? When when things are going well and they've done a good job and they have nothing to hide, is there any reason for them to delay this? I mean, could it be just paperwork or something like that that needs to be put together? It's un it's common for FOIL requests to be delayed. Uh, normally, the the difference here there's two things that are different. One is the information we're asking for is sort of the kind of routine thing that departments don't usually hold back. Mm. Um, the analogy I've been drawing is, imagine if a police department was only reporting crimes that happened during the week and was omitting crimes that happened on the weekend. <laughs> and this came to light and everybody said, well, wait a minute, why aren't you reporting the crimes that happened on the weekend? And they said, well, we'll get back to you in, in a year with that information. <laughs> um, the other thing is that this is a really high profile piece of information. It's something that a lot of people have been wanting to see for a long time, including members of the legislature from both parties who 
who very specifically asked for it in hearings over the summer, were assured by the commissioner that he would get it to them shortly, and he still hasn't. Now, and this is, go, you, you mentioned both sides of the aisle. Uh, a Democrat, the, the Senate state chair of the committee, is now threatening to subpoena uh, these numbers from Andrew Cuomo. Is that right? He's the chair of the investigations committee. His name is James Scoofus, and he, ha- he said today, that he would like he would like to be able to subpoena this information. It has to run up. He has to he has to get approval from the party leaders in his house in the Senate. Um, but I think the idea was that the commissioner is due to testify before the legislature next week, um, a week from Wednesday. the The topic is the state budget, but this was. Senator Scoofus' way of saying, look, we're, we're expecting answers on this question. And, you know, if you're not forthcoming at some point, we're going to think about a subpoena. So I think it was a way of, of trying to ramp up the pressure to some extent on the commissioner. This has been so long, you almost wonder if you can trust the numbers when you get them. But we do need to get them to at least have a starting point to understand what actually happened there. Uh, you mentioned the budget. Uh, this is interesting as well. Cuomo is it has introduced a budget in which it doesn't seem like he's changed much of anything, despite the fact he's been facing a global pandemic and was the hardest hit state, arguably, in the entire United States. It seems like maybe a couple changes on the budget might have been in order. Yeah, I mean, I, I pay attention to mostly to the budget for Medicaid, which is the, you know, the big public health plan for the poor and disabled. And last year, they when they enacted their budget, the pandemic had just started, and they they knew it was going to have a devastating effect on the economy. It had already started, and yet they really put off making any serious cutbacks in spending, um, sort of waiting to find out what the federal government would do. They've now been waiting for, you know, most of a year, and they're still waiting. I mean, they. They, they actually, they have gotten some aid, and in particular, they got extra money for Medicaid. But it didn't fully close the deficit that they had a year ago, and now they have an additional deficit. And so I was looking for some sign that the Medicaid budget would be constrained, that there would be some belt tightening. But no, the, the rate of growth in that program continues at the same level as, as ever. It's about three times the rate of inflation. It's about you know, four and a half percent a year. Um, it was it was that that was surprising to me that there wasn't any sign that uh, that the governor's approach to this budget was being affected by the fact that we had um, a public health crisis and a fiscal crisis to deal with. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I, as I look at this, if and try to digest what has happened throughout this this entire year, and particularly as it, it deals with Cuomo. I see him almost as a performer in so many ways. He's a television performer. He is he, he his governing instincts are routinely incorrect in my view. Um, you know, there are other governors that screwed up the handling of of, of the COVID situation. I mean, no one else uh, did some of the stuff that that Cuomo's done, and every other state has released the numbers we're talking about. So I have to be specific that Cuomo, in my view, is much much worse than uh, than everybody else. But still, he, he's not the only one who made mistakes here. I think the issue is. Uh, the way he's handled it, he's bragged about it. He's written a book. He's sold posters praising his own handling of this. 
Is the media in general and New Yorkers in general starting to wake up and see, wait a minute, maybe this guy isn't the hero that we were promised? I mean, I don't know. The, uh, there is a certain amount of impatience with the governor. I, there's sort of two different parts of the media when it comes to this stuff. Um, the, the media who follow him up close, um, who have been paying attention to him for you know his entire term as governor, which goes back to 2011, they aren't. They they don't have the same uh, reverence that you sometimes see in the national media, mm. especially um, the on some of the TV media. So they have become accustomed to stonewalling on public information from the Cuomo administration. Um, I guess I would say that I, I I think the governor did some things well and some things poorly in terms of his direct management of the pandemic. One of the things that I thought he did well was on a day-to-day basis, and when the worst of the pandemic was hitting New York, he was giving hard numbers about what was going on. The number of people who had been diagnosed, the number of people who were hospitalized, the number of people who were on ventilators and in ICU, and the number of people who died. Um, He... He's started to drift from that philosophy. And that is like, if you talk to public health experts, they say that providing reliable, up-to-date information, whether whether it reflects well on you or not, it's really important to share that information so that the public has a sense, first of all, that they're being, that the government's being straight with them, but also that they have a clear idea of where things are going, what's happening. So I feel like the governor, he did that well for a period there. And he that that spirit of being straight with the public, has, he started to drift from that uh, considerably. I mean, he's he's been doing he's been kind of uh, withholding data on vaccines. And in particular, he has not been giving us details on the vaccines going into long term care facilities. Um, what is it with his rationale long-term is, care facilities? It seems yeah. like every single time are the same story. His rationale is that the federal government is managing that part of the vaccination program in, co- in collaboration with some chain pharmacies. But the fact of the matter is that the state has the data on exactly how many uh, vaccines are going on in the nursing homes under that federal program. He could be sharing them. There's a lot of other data he could be sharing and he's being kind of selective about what information he puts out. All right, we'll continue to follow this. Bill Hammond, Senior uh, Fellow for Health Policy at the Empire Center. Thanks for coming on and doing so much to keep Andrew Cuomo accountable in this whole time. Thanks for having me. All right, back in a second. By the way, we should point out, the Empire Center has nothing to do with Andrew Cuomo is awful mugs. Those are available at andrewcuomoisawful.com, but I, I assure you, that's our dumb thing, not his. Back in a second. Uh, Well, welcome to the final segment of the program. If you've made it this far, you are in the Cool Kids Club, and I love you. By the way, if you happen to be here, it might be cool if you wouldn't mind clicking the like button uh, and or sharing and reviewing this program. Uh, Five stars is the appropriate number of stars if you're leaving a review. Something quick. It's great. Whatever. That's fine. Uh, Also, uh, everyone knows that, uh, and we talked about it today, Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. Uh, You may not know, but you should know that also Chris Cuomo is worse. Dot com. 
And a brand new addition to the family. The get get the entire set. Don Lemon in, is worserer. <laughs> so, how does this show stay on the air? Don Lemon is worserer.com. Uh, a fantastic website to get your mugs. <laughs> Let's say Don. I mean, if I I will come up with a fantastic prize for anyone who has the entire set. The next if we ever get a picture, uh, Adam, of, of whoever has the entire set, Chris Cuomo is worse. Don, or Andrew Cuomo is awful. Chris Cuomo is, is worse. And then Don Lemon is worse. Or I'm 100 percent on board for some large prize of some sort. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. It's probably going to be. I don't know. We'll just take something out of Adam's car. Whatever he's got in the, in the trunk is yours. We'll send it to your house. I don't know. Go uh, to the website. Stu Does Merch, by the way, is the place to go. We've got the uh, Joe uh, Biden um, senility now. We've got a Kamala shirt up there. We've got a great quarantine shirt. The Nancy Pelosi sucks mug is selling like hotcakes. If you like hotcakes, which I do, so therefore it's an appropriate setting. We'll see you tomorrow.